Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish life. We are Irish life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, you'll hear Cliff Taylor talking about the latest employment data from the CSO and this week's twists and turns in the ongoing Brexit saga. And Simon Carswell will recap the evidence of Ian Drennan, the Director of Corporate Enforcement, who was in front of an Oireachtas committee this week to talk about the ODCE's investigations into Anglo-Irish Bank and Sean Fitzpatrick. So we'll begin with some of the big business stories of the week, and I'm joined in studio for this segment by Peter Hamilton of the Irish Times. You're very welcome. Thanks, Kieran. And we're going to begin with whiskey. Yeah, it's been a very busy 24 hours and a funny 24 hours. I suppose, firstly, yesterday afternoon, we got word that John Teeling hadn't been successful in his appeal to onboard Planola. He was planning to build 13 warehouses in County Loud, their maturation facilities for whiskey. Uh, it would have been you know, to add to his presence there already with the Great Northern Distillery. and Which is in the old Harp Larger uh, Brewery in Dundalk Town. The Diageo Brewery, exactly. So he had planned this on a 111-acre mm. site. It spent over half a million on consultancy fees, but ultimately he wasn't successful. Now, there was some local opposition there, and on board Planola said it would con- uh, contravene well, he's zoning putting, He's putting some of it down like to nimbyism. Yeah, he did put some of it down to nimbyism. Not and in there my were, backyard. Indeed, there were a number of locals listed uh, as observers and local councillors listed as observers against his plan. Um, now, look, they may well have a point because... Maybe they're on, not on Irish board, whiskey drinkers. Uh, well, indeed, but on board, Planola also noted that it, it would have formed a discordant and obtrusive feature on the landscape. That's not really something you want when you're planning something like this. But then again, uh, it, it was simply warehouses. Mm. He says it's very hard to find warehouse space and now he's going to have to look elsewhere. He's going to look outside the county. So what happens allowed. to the site that he owns? He's not sure. Uh, they they previously grew barley on it, so they may well choose to continue doing that. He said the disposal wasn't off the cards. They may choose to get rid of it. Uh, and on a small portion of the site, there is planning permission for a, a small number of houses. I think it's in the region of six. So he, they could do that either. He strikes me as an entrepreneur rather than a farmer, John Teeley. But Indeed. we'll see what he, we'll yeah. see what he does yeah. with that. Okay. And now, meanwhile, uh, Peter, the Dublin Liberties Distillery has opened in the heart of the city centre. And it's actually very uh, close to where John Teeling's sons are operating a distillery that itself is only three or four years old. Yeah, I suppose this is a case of planning come good. They've opened today following a €10 million Euro investment. They... 
it's a fairly substantial facility. They plan to produce up to about 2.1 million bottles of whiskey a year there. And they say in their new visitor centre, they can accommodate up to 80,000 visitors a year. Now, it's a 400-year-old building mm. that had fallen into dereliction and they have completely renovated with this. So who are the backers of this project? The backers, well, the... It was initially the distillery was owned by Quintessential Brands, which was founded by an investment banker called Warren Scott and the former chief executive of Campari, Enzo Vizone. And it, they subsequently got a, uh, they subsequently sto- sold a stake to a UK listed uh, spirits company that's focused on the Eastern European market. Right. Okay. Now, uh, an awful lot of whiskey distilleries have started popping up around the country in the past uh, number of years. Is there going to be a market for all of this Irish whiskey? I suppose the point that they make is that we are considerably behind where Scotch is at now, selling over 90 million cases a year. We're, we're, we're not nearly there. We're only a fraction of that. Mm. So there is some work to be done to compete with that. Whether we'll get to the, that point, is, is, it's hard to know. But they say that there is still uh, great interest in Irish whiskey in North America. And Daryl uh, McNally, who's the master distiller there in, in Dublin Liberty Distillery, he was telling me yesterday that in uh, Eastern Europe and Russia and Australia, they're seeing great appetite for Irish whiskey. All right, we'll segue into food. Brexit, uh, dark cloud on the horizon. Kerry Group had some full year results out this week and they informed us that they've begun stockpiling raw materials mm. ahead of Brexit in the event that they can't get presumably some ingredients, etc. into the market. Yeah, and, and this was one of a number of Brexit-related announcements this week. And Kerry Group said that while they still, they still expect a managed transition, uh, they're building up weeks of stock. And interestingly, uh, Edmund Scanlon, the chief executive, said that some customers were building up to two or three months of stock. So that seems rather significant. Mm. Um, and then elsewhere, of course, Irish farmers became quite concerned this week after the UK Environment Secretary, Michael Gove, he confirmed that tariffs would apply on food imports. And they said that it demonstrates the gravity of the situation for the Irish farming sector. Of course, we are heavily reliant uh, for 4.5 billion of our uh, beef imports go to the UK. Mm. We're heavily reliant on that market. So a bad week, I suppose, for the domestic market here, or at least the, the, the producers. Bad week the as well. If, you're, if you like Porsche cars and you eat fish fingers, uh, it's not looking great either, is it? No, UK consumers, like we are seeing this every week now. And of course, there were jobs lost in Honda. Now, Honda have said, in fairness, that this isn't solely their, their job losses aren't Brexit related. But it's just there's not great news coming out of the UK all of the time now. And of course, as you mentioned there, Birds, I said that the price of fish fingers could rise by up to 20%. It's price of the <laughs> Indeed, is it? it's, it's, it's a hefty enough increase. And Porsche, well, their cars could increase by up to 10%. Yeah, well, if you can afford to buy a Porsche, you can probably uh, weather a 10% price increase. Now, we're going to talk about coal. It's on its way out. Mm. I think it's fair to say as, a, as an energy source uh, globally. And Glencore has had a thing or two to say about it this week. Yeah, I think this is particularly interesting because while we know it's on its way out, the fact that Glencore are now pulling back is a, a big sign. Today, they pledged to cap production of coal. They're the world's biggest exporter of coal and they're responding to investor pressure for action on climate change. Remember, as recently as last year, they acquired a coal facility. But in any event, they said their decision is part of a broader move to align their business with the Paris climate targets. Uh, and follows engagement with the network of their investors. This is significant, I suppose. This is mm. them moving back from that. Have they given a the sense of what they're going to replace it with? They haven't, but they have said that they're, they, they're going to now look at a long-term strategy into reducing uh, emissions. And presumably, well, I don't know whether that'll involve looking at other energy sh- sources, but uh, they're obviously a, a big in other, in other sectors in any event. But 
I don't know what they're going to replace it with. All right. Coal on its way out. Pete Brigette's on their way out. I don't know what people are going to burn, what fuel they're going to burn in the future in their, in their open forests. Anyway, we'll see how that plays out. Peter, thank you as always. Now, on Tuesday, Ian Drennan, the Director of Corporate Enforcement, appeared before the Oireachtas Committee on Business and the main focus of the questioning was around its botched investigation into Sean Fitzpatrick's loans at the Anglo-Irish Bank. Fitzpatrick, you might recall, walked away a free man in 2017 after the collapse of a retrial. He was accused of furnishing false and misleading information to Anglo's auditors over the scale of his loans at the bank, charges that he denied. Judge John Aylmer, on day 126 of the state's longest-running criminal trial, brought proceedings to a close after he criticised how the ODCE conducted its investigation. The judge found that the ODCE coached and cross-contaminated evidence in preparing witness statements taken from two partners at Ernst & Young who were Anglo's auditors. Mr Fitzpatrick's first trial collapsed after Kevin O'Connell, then a legal advisor to the ODCE, admitted shredding a number of relevant files in a panic after he found he had not disclosed documents to Mr Fitzpatrick's lawyers. Now, Ian Drennan told the Oireachtas Committee that the ODCE would not be equipped to deal with another investigation of the scale of the inquiries into Anglo-Irish Bank if that happened again tomorrow. Uh, Simon Carswell of the Irish Times was there to hear his evidence. Uh, Simon, that's quite an indictment, really. It is, yeah. And we're really just only getting into the investigation of the investigation at this stage. Uh, There are two... Two, two tracks that, uh, two strands that Ian Drennan has to report in terms of his accountability to, to government. One is to, is to the minister and the other is to the Oireachtas committee. And now we're actually only getting to the Oireachtas committee. So he had some very interesting things to say about what went wrong. He said that um, the wheels came off uh, the investigation. He said that they were pretty, it went wrong in a pretty catastrophic way. Uh, and it was interesting that he said if it were to happen again, uh, he didn't think that any state agency, however big or small, would be able to cope with something of the of the scale of the Anglo investigation. He said it was completely unprecedented. Uh, he talked about you know the need to uplift hundreds of thousands of documents, if not millions of documents. And he said uh, there there isn't any state agency that could cope with that. He said now in hindsight, and hindsight is twenty twenty. He admitted. He said that. Um, you'd know now that the risks are there and how would you mitigate against them? Uh, And uh, he did leave open uh, a lot of the detail as to what went wrong by saying that he has this uh, mysterious 450-page submission that he has done for the committee. Uh, They had twice refused to accept it in correspondence. It's not quite clear why they had. uh, And that was the subject of much debate before the committee started in private session. So we don't know exactly what was said. Ian Drennan was due to start speaking at four and he didn't get in until after six o'clock because the committee, uh, Lisa Chambers, the Fianna Fáil TD, said there was very robust exchanges in the private session as to uh, whether or not the committee should receive this uh, lengthy submission from Ian Drennan. And in the end, Mary Butler, the chairperson of the committee, Fianna Fáil TD, agreed that they would accept it and they're going to accept it over the coming days. So, uh, and Ian Drennan, in answer to a lot of his questions, he said, you know, he really encouraged the committee to read the report and there'd be a lot of answers in that. I think. What's so in- the committee heard from him in advance of agreeing to receive this report, essentially. Or they, receiving this report, at least. Yeah, uh, so they they are going to obviously read the report once they get it. Um, it's it's unclear. kind of the cart before the horse, isn't it? It is a little bit. And to be fair to Ian Drennan, he did say he would prefer to meet them in private, give them the submission, even walk them through it. Um, he said this in correspondence with them going back some time now, over a year. Uh, and he said, then I will do a, a public uh, hearing on it. And the concern is, and he outlined this in correspondence, is the litigation of financial risks that the ODC would expose itself to if it uh, produced this submission in public. And obviously there are people mentioned, like there's Ernest 
Ernest and Young, the partners there. There's ANL Good Bodies, who are the solicitors to Ernest and Young, uh, and they would clearly come in for some criticism, given that uh, Judge Eilmer had um, criticised the process with which he was talking about contamination, cross contamination, coaching of witnesses. The fact that these statements are going back and forth between the ODC and and ANL Good Body, uh, Ernest and Young solicitors, before the two audit partners were even asked about what happened in the audit of Anglo's books in relation to Sean Fitzpatrick's loans. All right. So just to be clear, they've agreed to accept this report from Ian Drennan. They're going to read it. Um, Are they going to hear from him again? It would seem to be the case that they are. It's not quite clear yet. Uh, as are they going to question them about the detail in this report? Well, as it stands now, they've accepted, they've agreed to accept the report, but we don't even know if they're going to publish that report. They may keep it in private. It's going to go through the clerk rather than, seems to be going through the clerk rather than distributed to the TDs and senators. Uh, and obviously they would want to keep a very tight rein over the report when it does come in uh, because obviously there's very significant detail in it. The one thing to say about the report though is it actually it seems to be broader than the report that Ian Drennan has done for the minister because the minister specifically asked Ian Drennan tell me about the investigative failures within the ODCE uh, that rise within the ODC that led to the collapse of the trial. And his view is, is there's, and he said this in his opening statement to the Oireachtas Committee this week, he said the factors that led to the collapse of the trial extend well beyond the ODC. Where it extends to, we don't know yet. Uh, there were some questions asked at the committee last night about, uh, well, you had said in your opening statement um, there was a look back with the D, uh, DPP and the ODC about what happened and lessons learned and what, what, what they could figure out about uh, what went wrong. And he wouldn't go any of that detail. So there's that correspondence between the ODC and the DPP and the back and forth there that went on uh, after the investigation to see what would happen. So I'd say there's a lot of detail within the report that might touch on that. But again, we don't know until we see it. Mm. Um, Okay, so uh, well, let's go back to the evidence he did uh, give um, to the Oireachtas Committee on Tuesday. Uh, He talked about the wheels coming off and, as you say, a fairly catastrophic uh, failure on on the part of the ODC. What about Kevin O'Connell's uh, role in all of this? Because he was the gentleman who shredded um, certain files in a panic uh, in the original trial uh, and he was working in the ODC. I think he, he's now employed as a civil servant in one of the departments. What about his role? Did that come up? Uh, it was touched on only in passing. Now, he was never named in the hearing, but uh, obviously it was very kind of thinly veiled reference uh, to him in the statement that Ian Drennan gave. Ian Drennan made the point, like notwithstanding the failures that led to the collapse of the trial, uh, there was some very good investigative, a high quality investigative work done is what he said. And he said, but that came at considerable human cost. And one of the senators pointed out, well, what are you getting at there? What do you mean? He described it as a very poignant line. And it was a kind of interesting moment. Um, it was quite a heartfelt comment from Ian Drennan, where he was clearly talking about Kevin O'Connell. And he said, human cost is a poignant term. And he said, he'd hope none of the individuals concerned would mind him, mind him saying so. But a lot of people were very badly damaged by this experience. Again, he didn't name anyone. And what he, he made a very interesting point after that. He said, the narrative that's in the public domain um, was not complete. And he said, if there's uh, if the full picture were to emerge, a whole different a different complexion would be put on. He said, there were dots to be joined and a bit and are bits missing. And I thought that kind of dovetailed in an interesting way with what Kevin O'Connell had said in his letter to the committee last week. He had said that he accepts that all of the criticism against him was inevitable and there was a lot of it, uh, he acknowledges in his letter to the committee. He said the vast bulk of it was quite legitimate. Uh, But he said some elements of it were excessive and he said he's looking forward to the full set of facts relating to his mistakes and errors together with the full set of facts relating to mistakes and errors of others. So... Ian Drennan is making this very similar point to what Kevin O'Connell has said in his letter. Yes, there are failures within the ODC, but 
it extends beyond that. There are other issues. What they are, we don't know. There were hints as to what it might be in previous testimony to the High Court. For example, uh, the Minister of Enterprise received a report way back in I think, 2011, it was, noting the extent to which witnesses required assistance of legal advisers, and they, the comment was made that that was quite unusual and uncommon in the experience of Gardaí. And there was also a report done in December 2010, it was a report done for the DPP, where it knew about how the statements were being taken, how what was later criticised, uh, what the judge criticised the ODC for as being coaching contamination, cross-contamination. So clearly there were other agencies well aware as these statements were being taken that this was the process that was being followed, this was the procedure that was being followed. Now, Ian Drennan acknowledged last night at the Oireachtas Committee that they fell foul of the process, that the prohibition uh, that stops um, prosecutors uh, or investigators from, from taking witnesses in a particular way. So... I think we can have. We're not quite clear as to where this might go, but we have an idea of what it might bring in. It might bring in other state agencies, government departments, as to what they knew at the time that the investigation was going on, and what they knew about the process that was being followed in this particular strand of the Anglo investigations. So the pair of them seem to be suggesting that there are a lot of facts uh, involved here that people aren't aware of, and that the committee isn't aware of, and the public clearly aren't aware of. But taxpayers have paid for this whole whole mess. Whoever's to blame for it? Do we know the cost? We don't know the cost overall. I mean, it's sizable in terms of the investigation uh, that was run. I mean, it's hundreds of thousands in terms of the investigation. Was he asked yesterday as part of this? He, he, he didn't, as far as I can recall, he wasn't asked the uh, the cost of the investigation. I could be wrong on that. But he, I mean, it is sizable. He did point out there were five strands to the Anglo investigation and four were successful. There were convictions reached as a result of four of the investigations. Uh, so he was making the point that there were successes here, but he did admit, he said, regrettably, there were failures. Um, so why don't we, I mean, why why doesn't the public, the taxpayers, the people who are picking up the tab for this, why don't they have a right to this information? Well, I think they do. And I think it's uh, very belatedly the Rockdis Committee is getting round to this. Um, uh, when I looked at the correspondence going back and forth, and this correspondence between the Rockdis Committee and Ian Drennan, dates back to just after the retrial collapsed in May 2017 where they asked him, we want you to come in front of us. And it's only now that he's come in front of us. And remarkably, this is the first appearance by a director of corporate enforcement before an Oireachtas committee since 2010, since uh, uh, since Paul Appleby was director of corporate enforcement that predates Ian Drennan's appointment by two years. And it's remarkable that the ODC has not appeared before an Oireachtas committee in almost a decade. Um, so I think... Ap- the public has every right to demand accountability here. It's strange that the Oireachtas Committee are so belatedly dealing with it. Was this the right committee to hear from Ian Drennan on this matter? I mean, why not uh, the Public Accounts Committee, for example, or even the Oireachtas Committee on Finance, which has the likes of Michael McGrath and Pierce Doherty, people who are involved in the banking inquiry, very familiar with the issues uh, relating to this case? I think that's a really good question. And I think given how the the Public Accounts Committee, in the view of some, muscled in on the cervical check controversy, for example. Uh, it seems strange to me that they didn't choose to investigate this one because there's a lot of public money at stake. It relates to financial matters in a huge way. It relates to uh, sizable spending by um, a state office. Uh, the, the reason it was brought to this committee is this is the line committee. Uh, the Minister for Business, Enterprise and Innovation is the line minister who, who's handling this new legislation, this corporate enforcement authority legislation that's been introduced to try and beef up the powers of the ODC to turn it from an office into an actual standalone agency where it would have more powers. And Ian Drennan spoke about that. He said that if we had that opportunity, if, if, if we became um, a standalone agency, we would have greater flexibility in terms of hiring staff, we'd have greater flexibility in terms of bringing out ex- outside expertise. Um, 
so this is the committee that deals with this legislation because the minister is the minister dealing with the legislation. Yeah. So it follows that they're the ones that should be looking at it. And Kevin O'Connell has offered to supply this information, this new information that wasn't aired at the trial. He's offered to supply that, to share it with the committee. Um, are they going to accept that? Are they going to hear from Kevin O'Connell at some point? Again, it's not clear as to what they've decided. Most of the discussion in private yesterday seems to have been around this 450-page submission. Uh, it's been hanging around for a while now. Um, they were offered it some time ago, uh, the committee, and they twice refused it. So to be fair to Ian Drennan, he made a good point. He said, this is very complex. It, it extends out to other agencies. There's potential litigation risks. It makes sense for me to put it in a report. I'm off, I'm willing to give it to you. And they twice said, no, we're not going to take it. So now they've reluctantly or well, belatedly definitely agreed to accept it. But after um, much debate, it seems a lot of uh, consternation uh, and a lot of exchanges between uh, the committee members and the secretary, the legal secretariat of the committee. So obviously there's major legal concerns about how far the Octus committees can go. And obviously in the past, sure. we know the Octus committees have had major difficulties when it comes to um, naming names, when it comes to assigning blame on certain issues uh, that relate to public public spending. Now the ODC is due to get uh, new powers which would considerably beef up the way it can go about investigations in, into the into the future. Uh, was Ian Drennan asked about that? What's his, what's his take on these new powers and would it prevent something like this happening again? Well, he was asked about that in the context of would they be able to deal with an Anglo-type scenario if it happened again in the morning? And as I said, he said he, they, they wouldn't. No state agency would, however big or small. But he was asked, well, what about this legislation? Would that mm. leave you robust enough to it's deal FBI with... It's FBI-style powers, isn't it? Yeah, and he did acknowledge that it would help. It would help with um, bringing in staff, bringing in expert, uh, outside expertise. Uh, the fact that it's a standalone agency would give it greater strength. Um, and... I mean, the Taoiseach himself has described it as an Irish FBI for white collar crime. So, and there, there is, it would certainly beef up a lot of the powers that they'd have. They have greater powers when it comes to searching, uh, to accessing digital records, uh, which is a huge task. Ian Drennan touched on that, as I said, with the number of records that would be, uh, that, that investigators would have to look through. So, he, yes, he's saying that this would, um, this, this new legislation would be a good thing. But um, I think that's, they're still looking backwards as to what happened and uh, I don't think they can quite look forwards yet with this legislation until they figure out what happened. I think there's a lot of post-mortem is still being done as to what actually happened at the ODC and what happened with this investigation. Now there's another very substantial investigation underway involving the ODC and that relates to independent news and media. Um, inspectors have been appointed by the High Court uh, into that case. Uh, was there any mention of that in front of the committee yesterday? There was mention of that and uh, Ian Drennan mentioned it in the context in his opening statement where he talked about, um, he re- it, was a, it was a feather in his cap, I guess. He was making the point that we carried out this uh, investigation, a subsequent application for the appointment of inspectors, which he led, and that was vigorously opposed. And he quoted in his opening statement uh, the, the comments by the President of the High Court, Mr Justice Peter Kelly, where he was talking about that kind of well-known quote now that whether um, using the, or appointing inspectors is a serious matter and sledgehammer should not be used to crack a nut and he said that the evidence before me is no nut. So Ian Drennan was pointing out that yes, they carried out the significant investigation. This uh, is into an alleged data breach. A very significant data breach is alleged uh, at INM over a number of years. Yeah, and, and among other matters, um, market abuse allegations is allegations that uh, attempts were made 
to purchase an asset belonging to owned by major shareholder um, at independent news media, Dennis O'Brien, uh, uh, attempt to push that at a at an inflated price. So a lot of different issues that were uh, investigated as part of the ODC's investigation. So I guess if you look back at Anglo and Ian Drennan tried to break up the history of the ODC, the near 20-year history of the ODC into two, three phases. Yes, there was a lot of work done in the pre, pre-crash phase uh, where mistakes made in the crash phase and now we're in the lessons learned phase. And I think you could park the INM investigation in the third part of that phase. Okay. And it certainly shows that what was traditionally an agency that dealt with matters at district court level, it shows it could play with the big boys and could take on some very, very right. significant corporate the- cases. The Fitzpatrick case was obviously a major failure for the ODC on his watch. Was he asked if he considered resigning? No, they didn't go there. Um, he, The point he made, and he said it very late on in the testimony, uh, and it's worth stressing that he actually was not there. Uh, he was not in the ODC. He was not Director of Corporate Enforcement when uh, the uh, issues arose in relation to the investigation. The, 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 the main bulk of the investigation uh, that was subsequently found to be botched took place between 2009 and 2012 and he came in in 2012 and one of the things to be fair to him was he sought to what he discussed, what he said was professionalise what needed to be done to professionalise the ODC further and obviously he recognised there were deficiencies when it came to resources so that question didn't arise because it really it's not applicable to him he wasn't there at the time when they decided to follow this particular flawed process or what we now know is flawed All right, Simon Carswell, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times about the latest employment data from the CSO and various issues around Brexit this week. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life, June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. You can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes. And it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Now, this week, data from the CSO showed that unemployment in Ireland was at a record high. Now, data this week from the CSO shows that employment in Ireland was at a record high at the end of last year of 2.28 million people. Some 50,500 jobs were added in 2018, while the long-term unemployment rate fell by 2.5%. All positive indicators. However, the rate of growth in job uh, numbers is slowing and Brexit, of course, is hovering on the horizon and that could have untold consequences. I'm joined now by uh, Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times to tease out these figures. On the face of Cliff, uh, some some very good figures. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, 2.28 million people now at work in the Republic, which is higher than even at the uh, before the crash in 2008. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the really good news stories in the Irish economy over the last few years has been the jobs market. As we know, taking a longer term view, a huge fallout during the crisis, massive loss in job numbers. Unemployment went as high as 15%. It did indeed. Uh, we've more than recouped the losses in terms of uh, the jobs market since then. So we have jobs at an all-time high, as you say, 2.28 million, up 50,500 over the last year. So, you know, around 1,000 a month yeah. jobs being created. And we must remember this is a net figure. So this is the total number of people at work. It's gains minus losses. Yeah, 1,000 a week. 1,000 a week uh, net gain. So still very strong. There are signs that I guess that the market is starting to to slow a little bit, uh, which would be no surprise with unemployment down over, under 6%. Uh, 
Uh, a couple of reasons for that, I think. Uh, one is that uh, we hear from employers that it's, it's hard to get hold of people now, uh, particularly in certain skills groups. Uh, and looking at the figures, uh, it's clear that increasing numbers of employers are, uh, are, are looking abroad to fill, to fill jobs. So if you look over the last year uh, of the jobs, of the increase in employment, 29,000 came from non-Irish nationals and 21,500 from Irish nationals. Mm. So more jobs are being filled by people from outside the country, a sign of, I think, job shortages in the Irish economy. So, yeah, there are still a pool of unemployed people. Uh, but clearly, I, I guess, in terms of the talents they're looking for, businesses are increasingly having to look. Having but to if look we look at the trend over the year as a whole, in Q1, 17,400 jobs added, Q2, 14,700, Q3, 9,500, Q4, 8,300. So we went from Q1 to Q4, it roughly yep. halved the number of jobs created. I wonder if there's a Brexit effect here, yeah, Cliff. I, I, are there some companies sitting on their hands in terms of investments, yeah. waiting to see what's going to happen with Brexit? Yeah, I think that's the case. And certainly, even if you were to look back at the fourth quarter of last year, you see an extraordinary increase of 26,000. Mm. So quarterly increase of 26,000 down to 8,300 in the first quarter of this year. I think the first thing you've got to say is that the increases we saw in, in 2017 and earlier this year were, were exceptional. I mean, to get an increase of, of 26,000 in one quarter, as we did at this time last year, fourth quarter of 2017, sure, was, was Q4 should be a busy time for employment, no? Because sure. uh, obviously retailers are, are bulking up uh, for a very, what they hope is a very busy yeah. period and the services sector right across the board, yeah. restaurants, hotels, etc., you would have thought would be adding people yeah. because they're going to be so busy over the period. Yeah, remember, of course, these are, the, the, the CSO does try and adjust the figures to take mm. account of those seasonal those seasonal swings. But you're right, uh, you know, it should be a strong quarter. Uh, it, it was a strong quarter, but there's no doubt we're seeing, we are seeing some slowdown in, in, in the rate of growth uh, of employment in the economy. Uh, I, I think you're right. I think some of that is probably Brexit related. I think it would be surprised if if companies in a lot of sectors weren't kind of sitting in their hands and saying, "Okay, we'll hold off for a bit. We'll see what happens here. We won't make any investment decisions, any hiring decisions, or, or, or nothing beyond what we have to do uh, on, on, until we see how Brexit pans out." That said, there were job increases in ten of the fourteen main sectors of the economy during the quarter, so there is no sign of a of job losses or no sign of any sector mm. in trouble. I think you're right. I think people are just sitting in their hands and saying, well, hold on a minute now. We, we'll see what happens. You know, no proof of that. Uh, no clear evidence of that, I, I, I guess. It, it's just a feeling talking around to people, talking to recruiters, talking to people in professional services firms. They're saying last quarter last year and coming to this year, Brexit you know, has got real for companies and they're, and, and, and they're adjusting their plans or at least sitting yeah. on their hands. Uh, now, this is a labour force survey, so all sorts of data in there. For example, long-term unemployed as a percentage of the total jobless number, uh, 39%. Yep. They've revised upwards the jobless rate uh, effectively from 5.3% to 5.7%. It constantly seems to be going up and down. I, yep. It's hard to figure out. Uh, but interestingly, the participation rate at 62.2% below what it was uh, before the crash when it was yep. uh, 66.7%. Now, I guess the population has probably increased. Yeah. That's probably one reason uh, for that. It is one of the uh, issues we probably do face in the jobs market, particularly if growth is going to remain strong, if we avoid the worst kind of Brexit and the economy keeps trundling along. I think one of the challenges for policymakers, and this came up at the height of the last boom as well, is to encourage more people to go back into the workforce. So typically women who are, who are being at home, some of whom may have left the workforce uh, for a period of time to have kids or whatever, uh, and now are looking to come back and, and face barriers in doing so, uh, particularly childcare costs. 
so this is, you know, this this is a policy issue to to try and make it easier for people to to come back into the workforce to have the kind of flexibilities that are needed in the workforce while still working for employers. Mm. But it is noticeable that the rate of participation here is is lower than you'd see in many other EU countries. So you'd have to think that there are there are difficulties here and I suppose on the other hand opportunities to, to get more people to come back into the workforce and, and, and people I think that would have a lot of the relevant skills, I guess. Sure, yeah. Now let's talk about Brexit. It's been a relatively quiet week on the Brexit front in terms of political machinations. But yeah. in the UK, eight people have left the Labour Party. There's rumours that some are going to leave uh, the former splinter group, essentially, yeah. and, and that some are going to leave the Tory, Tory party and join mm-hmm. them uh, in this breakaway, and this independent group, as they're calling themselves. And, uh, you know, we've had a bit of chatter about whether there's, there's going to be any movement on the backstop, but there doesn't seem to be any yeah. movement on the backstop. But we've had Michael Gove come out and say, well, look, in terms of agri-products, there are going to have to be tariffs uh, imposed yeah. in the event of a, a no-deal Brexit. Yeah, I suppose two, two things to look at. First of all, kind of the overall political situation. As you say, the talking goes on. And one of the noticeable things, and reading the reports from Dennis Staunton, particularly in London, uh, the optimism are, are being fed out from 10 Downing Street that some kind of deal can be done versus the cynicism and certainly caution in, in Brussels where the where where everyone is saying, look, there's no real move here from the UK. There's no basis to do a deal. So Theresa May is going back in tonight to talk to, uh, to Jean-Claude Juncker. There'll be more talk in the days ahead. We'll see where that goes. But... You're right. No sign of a no sign of an imminent breakthrough, and again, another important day in the House of Commons next week, when some key amendments will be voted on, and it will become clear in particular whether MPs are trying are going to be successful in in in, in pushing Theresa May to rule out a no deal if if she can't actually get a deal in the next few weeks. So I think that's a really a really key thing to watch. In the background, no deal fears, as you say, are being ramped up very significantly. Michael Gove, uh, the Environment Secretary, what he said to the UK farmers was important. So there has been a big debate in the UK about whether tariffs would be imposed on uh, food coming in, food products coming in from the EU after after Brexit. Uh, So at the moment, if uh, food products are coming into the EU from a third country like Argentina, Brazil, New Zealand, whatever, very significant tariffs are placed on them. That effectively shuts a lot of beef, for example, from Argentina or dairy products from New Zealand out of the out of the European market, uh, with the exception of some small amounts that they're allowed to bring in at lower tariff levels. So a lot of discussion in the UK, some people saying, look, let's do away with tariffs and have a cheap food policy. Uh, the worry for British farmers is that that would bring in products from, from across the world and, and effectively wipe out a lot of the UK farming and food sector. So Michael Gove, sa- Gove said, look, we, there will be tariffs after Brexit. And the problem for the Irish food sector then is that that is going to make it difficult to sell product from Ireland to the UK market because these special tariffs are going to be there. It's effectively going to price some products out of the market completely, uh, particular problems in the beef sector, and also make it more difficult for people in other sectors like consumer foods where there are tariffs but they're at a lower level. So it's going to eat into profit margins, make it more difficult to sell in the UK market. So This is the reality of Brexit though, isn't it? This is the reality of Brexit. This has been what's coming all along. The problem with the no-deal Brexit, I think, is that it crystallises that risk in a very short period of time. So 
what everyone has been thinking for thinking about and planning for when Brexit was announced first would there'd be a deal and a transition period and maybe some deal would be done where there'd be no tariffs but in the worst case scenario we'd know a year or two years in advance things would be phased in companies could adjust the problem with an old deal Brexit is everything happens overnight cliff edge cliff edge Brexit mm. so whether it happens on March the 29th or it's put off by a few months Everything changes overnight. So customs change overnight, tariffs come in overnight, new checks come in overnight. So so there are there are two risks. There's the immediate risk of disruption mm. because nobody's sure the systems are going to work. And frankly, I don't think they are. Uh, things are going to be held up at ports. Uh, supplies are going to be held up. Certain products aren't going to make it to supermarket shelves, et cetera, et cetera. And the more, I guess, serious risk in, in, in the weeks ahead uh, of huge disruption in some sectors, particularly the beef sector, parts of the dairy sector. Um, What's the import for the whole Brexit scenario of these eight Labour MPs splitting off from mm-hmm. the party to form this independent group, possibly joined by some Tories? Yeah. UK politics is in complete flux. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And there's no doubt in my mind that if, if a no-deal Brexit does come to pass, who, who knows what's going to happen? The importance of it is, does it put pressure on uh, Jeremy Corbyn to modify his position uh, to do some kind of a deal with Theresa May if she modifies her position. In other words, does it make Jeremy Corbyn uh, readier to do some kind of a deal with Theresa May to avoid a no-deal Brexit? That's the importance of it. Now, he's saying, so far he's saying, no change on my part. I'm keeping going as I am. Uh, the Labour Party has been constructively ambiguous, you might say, about what kind of Brexit mm. it wants. Well, one of the frustrations expressed by the eight is, is that Jeremy Corbyn and Labour weren't prepared to follow through on this commitment for a second referendum. Yeah. So it had appeared, and it still does appear over the last few weeks, a couple of months, that the idea of a second referendum has kind of faded into the background a bit. Um, there was a, appeared to be a bit of wind behind it a couple of months ago. Tony Blair was out. Some other people were out. There was appeared to be a bit of political momentum that this was the only way forward. But the longer it's gone on, it, it just doesn't seem to have got the support from Labour that it needed. I, I think we might be a bit too late still uh, in terms of these defections for, for, for the second referendum to get to get some wind. Uh, that said, if there's a delay in the Brexit process, if Article 50 is put off, if there's a few more months in the debate here, who, who knows what will happen? Yeah, should we be worried in the round? Should we be worried about the Irish economy in 2019? I think a lot of it hangs on Brexit. I mean, there's a lot of other things out there Global economy slowing down. I think we're certainly, we've seen the peak of the Irish economy. I don't think there's any doubt of that. Growth is going to be slower from now. We've had an extraordinary period of, I suppose, bounce back. You might say I think the bounce back is over. The external economy is a good deal less favourable. But I think such is the momentum here that if we avoid the worst case Brexit, then the economy will probably keep chuntering along. Uh, the worry is that we get this big hit at the end of March uh, and that will be very disruptive. It will lead to big job losses. Ulster Bank said it could be 40,000 over the next year, 40, 45,000 jobs. Um, that's going to hit tax revenues, it's going to hit confidence, it's going to hit investment. Uh, it's going to bring all the risks of Brexit into a very short period of time. So that is a ri- that is the, the worry for the Irish economy this year. Will it happen? Who knows? Okay, we'll wait and see how that plays out. That's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Simon Carswell and Cliff Taylor. Declan Conlon was producer and sound engineer this week. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed every day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 